We continue with the words of the psalmist to a time of fellowship. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The past few weeks we've been going through Psalm 119 just before the time of fellowship. And here we have three verb words to describe how we should be to receive the word of God. Choose the way of faithfulness. Cleave to God's word. Run in the way of the commandments. These three things should enable us to hear the word of God. Choose, cleave, run to God this morning as we hear the word of God preached to us. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. And in your bulletin, locate the outline and use that to follow along as we fellowship around this, this parable of our Lord. Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast. I'd encourage you to please stand together with me as we read this God's word. Hear now the word of our king. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his, to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who have been invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets, and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests." And when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw their man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given us now to come here at this holy moment in our lives, this precipice where we get to fellowship with you in your word, through your, your word, gaze upon our Lord and feast. God bless this time. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity and grant, grant unction we read and study that Holy Spirit, we would do more than just simply listen, but that we would be responsive. That your word would humble us and grow us and encourage us and inspire us to serve you. To, uh, to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, do a work of grace in us this day, we pray. Both the, the preached word as we approach this table, we pray in Jesus' name. Please be seated. As many of you know, Nels and I attended our regional gathering of the um, churches of Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, North Dakota, and South Dakota this past week. And when we have those regionals twice a year, my uh, habit typically is to come back and look with you um, upon a a parable. And we're going to do that this morning. In the past couple years, more than a couple years, past couple few years, we've seen and been encouraged by many incredible messages from these parables. For example, the, the parable of the uh, talents. We were taught by Christ to watch and pray. The parables of the hidden treasure and the, the pearl of great price taught us the, the inestimable value of the kingdom of God. Nothing more important than the kingdom. From the parables of the unjust judge, we were taught to persevere because God loves us. Persevere in your service. uh, Persevere in your fellowship with God. He loves you. From the good Samaritan, we we learn the importance of loving all people. Serving out of love. From the ten uh, versions, we were exhorted to be ready. But of all the parables we've looked at, perhaps the most threatening is the parable of the wheat and tares. The parable of wheat and tares is a parable to describe the present kingdom of God, the visible body of Christ. And it's composed of both believers and non-believers, wheat and tares, genuine believers, sham believers. And that parable brings with it this call uh, summarized for us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Yet that's threatening. Because if you and I, in any way, in testing ourselves, look at ourselves, we're not perfect. Therefore, anything we might look at to see if we are saved, there will always be cracks. And those cracks will always raise doubt. If my salvation is based upon my obedience, my responsiveness to God's word, I'm saved. How do I know I'm saved? Well, because I respond to God's word. In my conscience, I know there's many times I don't. So maybe I'm not saved. If my salvation is based upon my uh, uh, profession of faith in Jesus Christ, well, what if I didn't mean it? Because I know in my heart, did I really mean it? I'm not sure. If my uh, uh, salvation is based upon holy living, any kind of external religious duty, well, in my heart, I know, I, don't, I fail at those. My attitude, name it. If my salvation is based upon the fruit of the Spirit, how much do I 
characterized joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Man, I look at my own life. Maybe on the outside, you might would say, boy, Greg's filled with joy today. Hey, guys. But inside, I'm weeping and burdened. Maybe I'm not saved. Brothers and sisters, if you look within to discern whether or not you're saved, you will never come to the point of 1 John 5.13, where he writes, these things I've written to you in order that you may know you have eternal life. You and I will always struggle with whether or not God accepts me in the beloved. Well, if that's not the inside, well, then what are we to look at? Because we are called to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. What is it? Well, the answer for that is the parable before us this morning. It's a beautiful parable. This was spoken, taught on Sunday, according to Bettner, Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus Christ was to be crucified. So this is the very end of his life. He has been teaching in the temple square on the temple mount. And by this time, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders of Judaism, they've gotten sick of Jesus Christ, and they are now rearing their ugly heads and uh, opposing him. Go back to 2123. When he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Man, they're challenging him in the open without any kind of equivocation, without any kind of apology. They're now hating Christ. In fact, if you look back at 2146, at the, they, they were, this is after Gamaliel's comment, they're planning on how they're going to kill him. They're planning at this point, what can we do to shut this man up? We're sick of him. So Jesus Christ tells this parable to warn them of the terror that awaits them if they persist in their unrepentance. But yet it goes beyond that. Because that's about halfway through the parable, as we'll see. Christ also told this parable clearly to, uh, to encourage his people, unlike them who have a great showing, they look saved, this is the basis upon which you are saved. This is the basis upon which you have assurance of salvation. So with that, let's dive into this wonderful little parable, beginning with the rejected invitation. Notice would be verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again, saying, I'm sorry, again in parable saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, in the last year, I know I've referenced a couple times the custom, the the biblical Jewish custom uh, a, a prevalent in Christ's day with regards to weddings. There were three facets to it. There was the arrangement that typically occurred when the kids were, were children. Then there was the betrothal, and uh, that was where they took public vows. They basically were married, but they didn't live uh, together. They didn't share the same bed. And then after an interval of time where the man could go and, and make the money he needed to, to make, and prepare for his home, and she was preparing for this wedding, Um, they then had the wedding feast. And the wedding feast, in essence, was when they became man and wife. Well, that's what it's it's that facet that this parable is uh, talking about, the wedding feast. But this is no ordinary wedding feast. This is the wedding feast of a king, right? Look at the the text. Um, Verse 2, it can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Brothers and sisters, that means this wedding feast would have been the most amazing event. 
fact, we already know that the, in the ancient world, the wedding was the most celebrated event in Jewish uh, culture. The wedding of a king with his son. You talk about the most notable businessmen would be there. The most notable teachers of Judaism would, would be there. The most powerful people, governors, ki- um, uh, um, kings from other lands, they're all going to be there. This would be an amazing feast. MacArthur wrote these words, For a royal wedding, such as the one Jesus mentions here, the celebration often lasted for several weeks. Guests were invited to stay at the house of the groom's parents. The groom's parent, in this case, is the king. Guests would be invited to stay in the palace for the entire occasion. And the father would make an elaborate provisions as he could afford a royal wedding of course would be held in the palace and a king would be able to afford whatever he desired so this is an incredible wedding feast so when christ starts telling this feast no doubt those listening to him are thinking back they didn't have a king in their day who was enthroned in jerusalem but you can imagine them thinking back to the old days when david had his palace right there, or Solomon, or Uzziah, name it. Wow, they began thinking about the glory of this wedding feast. We pick up some of the particulars in verse 3. And he went out to his slaves to call those who had been invited, or he sent out his slaves to call those. This would have been the second invitation, if you think about it. He's, He's sending his slaves out to call those who had already been invited. Now, if you know the Midrash, which you and I don't, but I know it because or I don't know it, I read about it. You're not too concerned in Jerusalem. So when Jesus is telling us this, the people listening would not be too concerned at this point because it's a, it was a common cultural custom in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Jewish people that, it, that they only responded to an invitation after the second summons. So this is right in line. So at this point, they're like, okay, yep. He sends them out. To those who were invited. But then again, this is the wedding feast of a king. So you might start wondering, what? They didn't come? And that brings us to 3B. And they were unwilling to come. In a lot of the culture of Judaism, brothers and sisters, this is indeed a shock. They're unwilling to come? This would have been the talk of their town. This wedding feast. You're invited? You're going to rub shoulders with that king and that king and that businessman and that multi-multi-millionaire. Imagine being invited to the wedding of some famous person in our land, multi-multi-billionaire. Man, you'd be rubbing shoulders with presidents and and ambassadors and who knows what else, right? Wow, this would be your talk. But these guys were unwilling. Pretty shocking. But you know what? Rather than getting angry, verse 4, we pick it up again. He sent out other slaves. Christ here right now is giving us a sense that this king is gracious. This king is good. This is a kind king. A gracious king. And, uh, and so he, he issues a third invitation. Notice 4b. Tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner. This would have been the first meal in a context of a king that would last for weeks, a couple weeks. Whoa, this meal would be the greatest food that you could imagine. The ready, the food is ready. It's ready to be served. Come, come, come to the wedding feast. With that, notice the two responses, verses 5 and following. First, the response of indifference, verse 5. But they paid no attention 
and went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. This now becomes incredible. Christ is telling this parable at this point. You're listening really carefully because this is so beyond what you would expect. They, they, they just simply ignored it. They went their way. They didn't say anything. They didn't offer an excuse. They just went their way. In fact, the, the reference here to farm and business tells us that they were concerned. They were consumed with making money. They were consumed with basically the, uh, making the, the money that they need in order to continue their, their life. Their world had become so confined, so small. It was all about making a profit. It's reminiscent of what Christ described in the parables of the four soils of the man who hears the word in the world and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's one response. And that's people who are just indifferent. You know, religion is just a check mark. Christianity is, that's me. I was born here, so I'm a Christian. So I go to church. I attend regularly. But while I'm at church, I'm thinking about work. And while I'm listening, I'm not listening. Right? I can't wait to get home. I got my check mark done. I can't wait to get home and get on the yard. I can't wait to get home and, 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 and look at the, the, my uh, stock, whatever. Um, that's the indifferent. Notice, secondly, the second response Christ gives, verses 6 through 7. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Second response is open hostility and an act of unbelievable brutality. These people torture and kill the king's servants. Shocking. But then again, remember what Stephen said when he was giving his defense in Acts 7? Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Stephen's like, man, your fathers, every one of them killed the prophets. Which one of them didn't they kill? Can you name just one prophet they didn't kill? Open hostility. Ironically, Christianity typically today has one of two responses. It'll either be indifference, a yawn, or it'll be anger, open hostility. Verse 7, but the king was enraged and sent his armies. Literally his troops, he didn't send his entire army, he sent troops. And they destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Just to let, uh, to let you know that this is not harsh. In the culture of, of Christ's day, for a king to be rebuffed just once by something like this, he would have been just to have sent his troops to raise the city. This king waited th- after three invitations. So the king is being long-suffering, incredibly long-suffering. Um, and what did they do? They destroyed these murderers and set their city on, on fire. Many commentaries believe that Jesus Christ here is referencing 70 AD when Titus Vespasian, uh, leading the Roman legion, would come and ransack Jerusalem and uh, destroy um, every one of those in the city who he found and set the, the city on fire. All right, so that's, at this point, The religious leaders, we believe, there's no question, would have known that what Christ is telling them is about them. And we know that because of verse 45 of chapter 21. Look back there. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. In fact, the Talmud, a large, a major part of the Jewish hope in the Talmud was that when, when the Messiah came, there would be this massive feast, this incredible 
feast that would parallel, rival a wedding feast where God's people, the Jews, would sit at and enjoy. And Jesus, therefore, telling this would be a direct attack against them. In essence, saying, if you don't repent of your hostility and anger and the desire to kill me, you will perish. You will die. At this point, in essence, this parable ends with regards to these people. But it keeps going on. Christ keeps on on telling it. At this point, really focusing on those people who have heard, those people who, who did respond. How do we know if we're really saved? How do you know? We'll keep going. Notice the filled wedding hall, verse 8. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. That's the key word. We're going to define what it means to be worthy here by the very end. But that's a key word here. Those who were invited were not worthy. Now, you might think they weren't worthy because of their sin, and you would be wrong. They're not worthy because of their attitude, and once again, you would be wrong. They're not worthy because of their rebellion, and once again, you would be wrong. And we know that because of what's coming up. Okay, The reason why they were not worthy, um, as we'll see in a a little bit, well, let's just look at it. Verse 9. He then says, they're not worthy, therefore go, verse 9, to the main highways, literally where the highways branch to the side streets. You know what that tells us? The king says, go to where people rob you. Go to the places where there's beggars. Go get all the robbers and the beggars and the thieves and the criminals because that's where they hung out. Okay? Get everyone. Round them up. Don't just round up the people you think are good. Round up everyone you find and tell them you can go to the palace. Think of Jerusalem. Up on top of that temple mount was the palace. And if you were living in Jerusalem, you could see it. You could hear it. Imagine people coming out saying, and you've been wanting to go to this. Man, would it be great to go to it, but I'm just a lowly person. And all of a sudden, soldiers come marching down the street. Hey, you want to go? Come. I can go. He opens it up to the wicked, to the evil. And as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. Do you notice, brothers and sisters, worthiness was not based upon their moral purity. Worthiness was not based upon their deeds, upon their religious activity, upon even um, um, whether they were right with God or not. It had nothing to do uh, with that. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Incredible. Guys, you got to see the focus here in terms of their worthiness is not on the merit of those invited. Mark that. That's huge. Worthiness, when Christ talks about are you worthy, he's not talking about your merit or your relative merit or what you've done. has nothing to do with you or what's in you, or what's, what you're thinking, or what you've done. It is all based upon the grace and mercy of the king. Do you understand that? The worthiness is based upon the merit and grace of the king. That's what would make people worthy. We're going to explain that more in a little bit. Notice what Joseph or Josiah Condor wrote. "'Tis I did not, did not choose thee for Lord that could not be. Um, this heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst, this knowing if I love thee, 
Thou must have loved me first. Brothers and sisters, we're starting to get a glimpse at what makes someone's worthy. What makes someone saved. Why, why you can say I'm saved. Okay, it's you have to be worthy. And that worthiness is built and founded in the grace and mercy of the king. Okay, notice with me the missing wedding room. Verse 11. But when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Now from the context... You've got to realize this person's not a party cr- a crasher. The doors were open wide. So he couldn't have crashed this party. He obviously was one of the men who had heeded, the people who had heeded the invitation to, to come. However, he did not come dressed in the proper attire. Now you might wonder, how could anyone be in the proper attire if the people who were invited didn't come and, and then they just opened up the doors to people, to thugs and thieves, good, you know, rich, poor, good, bad, whatever. How could any be wearing the right robes? And yet, the fact is, he's the only one, which tells us they were. Everyone was wearing the right robes. So it was with, it, within this man's ability to have those robes. But he chose not to have them. Now, it, it, many commentaries at this point uh, cite... Um, the custom in the ancient world in many places where if you went to see a king, you had to wear the right clothing. And if you, if you didn't have them when you got to the palace, they would give you the right clothing. And so you'd go there dressed in the clothing that was provided you. So like when you go to a really nice restaurant without a tie, they give you a tie. All right? So this guy would have had an opportunity to wear the right clothes, but he chose not to. In fact, um, notice the phrase of verse 12. I'll read again. He said to me, friend, title of warmth. Again, he's still being gracious. Friend, how'd you come in without wedding clothes? He gave him a chance to respond. Wedding clothes? What are you talking about? Oh, you didn't didn't know? Go to the front gate and there's a whole box filled, filled with the appropriate attire. Okay, he doesn't. He's speechless, which means he's guilty. He's culpable. He made a decision not, I always, I, I picture it now, th- this is from nowhere, guys, this is my own little brain here. I picture it basically, you've got this wannabe upper class person. He's somewhat wealthy amongst the lower class, but he's not upper class yet. And because of his wealth, he has some pretty nice clothes. And the king opens up the doors, he's wanted to go to that palace, boy, he wanted to go there. And now he can come, he went home real quickly dressed in the finest attire that he used to impress all of his friends. And he walks in that wedding place going, Look at me. Imagine how good I, I, I look. But he's not wearing the appropriate attire. And so the king says, and that's why you, it makes sense that he'd be speechless. You're not wearing wedding clothes. Why aren't you wearing them? And you can imagine him going, don't I look good enough? I mean, really? You're going to try to improve upon this look, right? Really? Um, now, I could be completely wrong there. The text just says, He's speechless, which tells us this man's culpable. So get it. Why? Why did he not have those wedding clothes? The implication is this. This man considered that what he had on was good enough for the occasion. Verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness in that place, so should be weeping and gnashing. Obviously, this, the parable is done. Christ now is transitioning into 
application. He's no longer talking about this man. He's talking about people who are, who are indifferent, people who are hostile, and people on the last day who are self-sufficient. Outer darkness is a description of hell, Matthew 8, 12, 25, 30, and weeping and gnashing of teeth is a Hebraism for anger and rebellion, not pain. You read that and you think, oh, that's pain. Nuh-uh, it's anger and rebellion, Matthew 8, 12, 13, 42, 24, 51, Luke 13, 28, Acts 7, 54. All of those use that expression in the context of anger, extreme hatred of anger. So in essence, Christ says that will be the fate. That's the place, hell, for anyone and everyone who are not worthy. And all this then brings us to what message is Christ here conveying? The message is a simple one, brothers and sisters, found in verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many that day received the, the invitation. Come to the, come to the wedding. Come to the wedding. Many are called. But the fact that one of those people there were shown to not be worthy tells us that while many are called, few are chosen. And the word chosen there in the context of redemption would be many are called, but few are redeemed. Few are brought back to life. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Christ saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The robe is always, the, the very little debate as to what the robe was. And, and if you're going to apply this, what's the robe? The robe clearly had nothing to do with these people. It was and is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you had stopped Christ at this point and said, Christ, what's the robe? And he answered it directly. He'd say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That robe is a picture in scripture of the righteousness given to us, imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Listen to a couple passages. Revelation 3.18 to the false church of Laodicea, Christ said, I advise you to buy from me white garments, in other words, cleanliness, righteousness, that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The clothing here, brothers and sisters, you got to see is the righteousness of Christ. And thus, those who are worthy are those wearing the wedding clothes. And what is that? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who are worthy. It's not, and, and, and so get this, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with what they're wearing. Are they robed in Christ's righteousness or aren't they? If they're not in his righteousness, then they're not worthy to attend the marriage wedding feast of the Lamb. But if they are robed in Christ's righteousness, they're worthy. And what makes them worthy is nothing about them. It's everything about what God has done, his grace, his mercy on their behalf. We see it in Paul. This was Paul's glory. This was his joy. This was his, his boast. When Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he was writing to a, a church, a Gentile church that was being just molested, um, attacked, abused by these 
people, these what we call Judaizers, who, who were Christians, who believed the only way you can be saved is if you become a Jew. So these, these Judaizers, where they're telling the, the uh, uh, Philippians, man, you got to be circumcised. We're the right people. We're the glorious people. And so in Paul, in uh, Philippians 3, after, saying, after defining what the true circumcision is, it's those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, he then goes on and says, look, if there's anyone who could be saved by what they've done, which is what the, these Judaizers were teaching, you're saved by doing these things. It'd be me. Listen to Philippians 3, 4b. If, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day. I mean, he was circumcised the eighth day. It means he was saved. Judaism, that was salvation. Of the nation of Israel, the most important nation in the world, if you're a Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin, at that time, the most important tribe of the 12 tribes. The tribe of Benjamin is where the, the uh, temple of Jerusalem was. The tribe of Benjamin had Saul. The tribe of Benjamin was um, known for so many things such that by the time of Christ, it was the most important tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul says. You know what a Jew is? I make regular Jews look, look, look like they're nothing. I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisees. Uh-oh. That, man, that guy was, was zealous. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Man, he, he, he acted on what he believed. As to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If you looked at Paul prior to his uh, conversion, from the perspective, the lens of Judaism, you could find no fault in Paul. But you know what, brothers and sisters? With the coming of Christ in his life, Paul gave all that up. Those are the things he boasted in. He gave all that up. Verse 7, the text goes on. Whatever things were gained to me, his religious resume, he just said, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's nothing. Because of Jesus Christ, I realize now all that I could have been. Brothers and sisters, let me put it to you this way. If, if you and I could go back in time and you and I spent time with Paul, or better yet, if we could bring B.C. Paul, before Christ Paul, to the present day in our churches, provided he didn't try to kill us, you would think he was the most godliest Christian you've ever met. He knows Scripture back and front. He quotes Scripture. Long passages of Scripture in the Hebrew. He's this, he's that, he's the Hebrew of Hebrew. He's all these things. If you didn't know, you might think that man was saved. And you might think, that guy, that guy has to be saved. Look at his pedigree. Look at his resume. But Paul counted it as nothing. Why? Verse 8 and 9. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Brothers and sisters, forget my religious pedigree. Whatever you think is valuable in the context of God's kingdom, in terms of what you do, what you think, what you say, Paul counted all that as, as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. You know the word rubbish there? Dog waste. I count all of this stuff as that four-letter word. In order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, now this is key, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, See, that's what, when you and I worry about salvation, when you and I think about, am I saved? Do you know what you invariably do? You look at the righteousness that you are trying to attain through law-keeping. 
the, the religious activities that I, I do? Do I read God's word? Do I obey? Do I disobey? Do I flagrantly sin? Right? Those, if you don't do those things, you've got a righteousness that the law has given to you, that you've earned because you've done all these right things. Paul says, I've got a righteousness. His glory and joy was not a righteousness derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? That's what makes you worthy. It's not what you do or say or think. It's not the religious activities that you have. It's not how you feel. It's not your mental state at any given moment. It has nothing, hear this, absolutely nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ and his righteousness given to you. Incredible. In fact, Isaiah spoke of it. He wrote Isaiah 61 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. Why? My soul will exalt in my God. Why? For he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That's the wedding garment. That's our wedding garment, brothers and sisters. If you're wearing that garment, then you are welcome to the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you don't have that garment, you will be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Black and white, it's that simple. So how will you respond? Will you respond like those mentioned in this parable with indifference? Those are the people who right now are in church, across the globe, have attended church uh, today. Those are the people who are go to church because... That's just another duty that they do that, that, that comprises who they are. I'm a churchman. But that which they're investing in, that which is important to them, that which gives them second thought, pause, is not Christ, not the church, not the kingdom, not God's word, but everything else. Ryle wrote these words. There, there are thousands of hearers of the gospel who derive from it no benefit whatsoever. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and do not believe so that their souls are saved. They feel no special need of the gospel. They see no special beauty in it. They do not perhaps hate it or oppose it or scoff at it, but they do not receive it unto their hearts. They like other things far better. Their money, their land, their businesses, their pleasures are all far more interesting subjects to them than their souls. It is an awful state of mind to be in, but awfully common. Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their ten thousands. There will be a responder hearing this sermon today who will say, okay, in fact, they probably aren't even listening to me now. They're just going through the motions. They've heard it. They can check it off and say, I've done it. Notice, secondly, will you respond with hostility? That's the other one. And that's a common, and actually that's better than indifference because at least with hostility you're listening, right? That's much better than indifference. If you're listening and you've been offended by, by Christ saying, you know what, all your Bible study, worthless, scubble on. All your moral upright living, worthless, scubble on. The way you dress so nice and fine, worthless, scubble on. 
The fact that you've never touched this or tasted that or done this, scubalon, means nothing. You mean to tell me, and I get a little bit angry here, you mean to tell me that I've done all this stuff and it means nothing to God? You're exactly right. Nothing. Well, I don't want that God. I hate your God. Hostility. At least they're listening. But if that is their response, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Romans 1, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Or will your response, and this will be far more the typical response in a a, a broad evangelical Bible-believing church, will your response, or will you respond with self-confidence? like the man in the parable who refused the appropriate dress in favor of his own, in essence saying, I'm good enough. I've done enough. That likewise leads uh, to death. So many sitting in the church today hearing the gospel preach are saying, amen, amen. But when you ask them, why are you saved? They'll say, because I believe. Because I go to church. Because I don't do that. I do this. Because I, because I, because I. There are, there are some of you I know in this congregation who struggle with assurance of salvation because you can't say that. You and your heart say, but I fail. I want to be, but I don't. I, you know, I'm not like all you people. I know what's in my heart. I know the sin there. You know what? You're closer to a biblical understanding of assurance than the indifferent who think that the reason they're saved is because they succeed in having quiet times every day for four years. How do you know that you're saved? Because I don't do that, and I do this. That's why I'm saved. Brothers and sisters, if you look, I've said this, if you look within... John MacArthur wrote, Since Cain's first attempt to please God by offering his self-appointed sacrifice, men have been trying to come to the Lord on their own terms. They may fellowship with believers, join the church, become active in the leadership, give generously to its support, and speak a devotion to God. Like the tares among the wheat, they freely coexist for a while with God's people. But in the day of judgment, their falsehood will become obvious and their removal certain. Why are they false? Because their hope and confidence is Christ plus. And the more you say Christ plus, the plus becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until pretty soon, why are you saved? Ask people, why are you saved? Because of I, because I, I believe, I obey, I serve, I think, I don't think, I live, I look, I believe. Brothers and sisters, you are not saved because of anything in you. Or fourthly, will your confidence be the righteousness the garment of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ provided by your Savior at the cross. You say, I want Christ's righteousness. I want that to be it, but I'm not worthy. I'm so sinful. I fail so much. Christian, final statement here. Stop looking within. Take God at his word. Salvation is by faith. Through faith. Trust the righteousness of of Christ. Trust it. When I hear that, I think of Hoosiers. 
I'm, I'm wrapping this up. When I think of that, I think of Hoosier. If you saw the, the movie, it's about the 1951 uh, uh, um, Indiana State Championship team, the small little tiny town of 60 boys who they beat this powerhouse of, uh, I don't know how many boys in the school, but um, this little team of eight or nine guys, they go and they win the championship. Well, in the movie, Coach is trying to break them down. And so they only have six eligible people. One guy fouls out, and another guy's being rebellious. He's not doing what the coach tells him to do. So he benches him. And when the guy fouls out, they have four people on the court. And the ref comes up to him and says, hey, coach, you need five. And I love this. This is my profession of faith, brothers and sisters. He goes, that's my team. He goes, you need five. That's my team. He goes, all right, your funeral. And everyone was attacking him. Everyone was uh, criticizing him. Whether I live or die, whether I survive and succeed or fail, that's my team. Christian, whether you live or die, whether you succeed or fail, Christ is your righteousness. And if that's not enough, then I'll be one person in hell who claims the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to worry beyond that. I'm done worrying beyond that. My hope and confidence is nothing about me. I don't look at my life, my track record. I look to the cross of Jesus Christ alone. And if that's not enough, then I should be damned. And that's okay. I'm, I, I accept that. But I will not play the game where I look at my navel to discover whether or not I think I'm saved. That's the indifferent or that's the opposite. That's the uh, self-satisfied. No, brothers and sisters, our righteousness is Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. And I've, got, I've, I've written this down. I'm just going to read it. You can follow it. Italics. Outside of Christ, the movement of religion goes from the outside activities that you do that make you feel worthy on the inside. It is subjective and wholly me-centered. Every religion outside of Jesus Christ is subjective and wholly self-centered. In contrast, Christianity at its core is other-centered. We are made not to think of ourselves, the definition of humility, but to make much of God, much of his grace, much of his sacrifice, and so much of his purpose and work. The essence of true religion is making much of Christ and his cross work. That is why I'm saved. That is my boast. That is my confidence. And if that is your boast and that is your confidence, you don't have to doubt. You can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say you can rejoice because it is well with your soul before God. Hallelujah. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you this day. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. How do I do that, Greg? Ask yourself a fundamental defining uh, question. On what basis do you stand before God? Most in evangelical Christianity are going to say, because I. I hope you are saying this day, because of God, because of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, what a delight and joy it is to be called by your name. To be given a name and an heritage and a future, and a hope, seeing how, Lord, we, 
your people are scoundrels still. I dare say if we took anyone's life this, week, this past week and examined it in their secret private times, they and we would all be shocked by what we would see. I know that would be the case in my life. But Lord, my boast and our boast before you this day is, has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with what you as king have chosen to do as you open the doors of your wedding feast, calling the evil and the wicked, but first, clothing them. Clothing them in the righteousness of Christ, our wedding garment. Lord, I pray for your people today. I pray that they would leave here understanding that they're dressed in wedding garments. Father, if we were living in suits and ties and the best adorning dresses possible, how many sins would we avoid? How many things would we not participate in? Lord, may we ever be mindful that we're dressed even better than that in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And may that, out of gratitude and, re and, and rejoicing, be the reason that we, that we serve that we love, that we minister, that we sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us life. To the one this day, O oh Lord, who is hearing this with hostility or indifference or self-sufficiency, Lord, open their eyes. And let them see their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Let them see their sin finally as that which will in the end damn them that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, repenting of their self-sufficiency, their autonomy, and turning to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The time that we have left.